Hi, everybody. This is your host, Brian, for the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we meet innovative and inspiring facilities leaders from across the country. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Gabriella Blakey, who is the Chief Operations Officer at Albuquerque Public Schools. She's actually the first female COO the district has had. In this episode, we cover the importance of advocating for yourself in addition to the others. We also dive into the journey Gabby faced during her rise to the COO position. Also, we find out how she became a diehard Bengals fan without ever visiting Ohio. I promise you won't want to miss this one. Let's dive in. Hi, Gabby. Thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. Just to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you What are you doing now? How'd you get there? Good morning. So I kind of started, I grew up in Albuquerque most of my life, and I attended a school that was kind of an inner city middle school and high school. And when I was in middle school, my parents were very adamant that I go to the neighborhood school. It was a little bit further from my house, and it was this really diverse school. So a lot of my friends in the neighborhood transferred out to other schools, but my parents were very adamant that I go to the neighborhood school and that I would have a good experience, full experience there. So while I was in school, when I was in middle school, I was friends with um, my friend Diana and we were doing like a honor society food drive for the holidays, like collecting gifts and food and presents and all of those things. During that time we collected it, we all went to go deliver the presents and the food to the homes of the families that we collected it for. So we went to this apartment that was um, pretty close to the school that I went to. It was kind of across the street in the very high poverty neighborhood. And we go upstairs to deliver these gifts. And my friend Diana comes out from the back of the apartment. And I didn't know that she lived in the apartment. I didn't know that those were presents and food that we were collecting were for her family. She had like six brothers and sisters. And it was kind of an eye-opening experience for me that there were people growing up in my school that had such different experiences than I did. And that I had very early on like an obligation to make sure that they had everything to be successful that I was provided. And it was really clear to me how important it was to make sure that we support everybody else. Because she was in all of my classes with me and I had no idea that her home life was so different than mine. Yet the expectations we had in our classes were the same. And so it kind of was an eye-opening experience. And I think it started kind of my path of being an advocate for other people, along with feeling very comfortable in situations where people are not like me. So because I grew up in such a diverse uh, community, I actually thrive in meeting new people, being around different perspectives. My family looks like like a, the UN. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm used to being around people that are different than me and valuing that as part of society and what makes us better. So it wasn't um, surprising, I think, that I went into education as a profession just in that I changed my major like seven times in college. I couldn't figure <laughs> out what I wanted to do. I, wa- I don't have the story that I always wanted to be a teacher. I played teacher when I was little. Like that wasn't my path. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I wanted to do something where I could help other people and advocate for others. And I found that education was the place that I could do that. So I went into education. I started my teaching career in um, outside of Seattle, Washington, actually. Like I said, I like to be around people that are different. I like different experiences. So I went like 2,000 miles away from the desert into (laughs) the rain 
And I started teaching a newcomers program for students who didn't speak English that were new to the country. And so I started that outside of Seattle for a couple of years before I came back to Albuquerque because I felt really connected to give back to my community. So I came back to Albuquerque. So in that, I just kind of moved through the system as a teacher. And then I still had that like fire in me that I wanted to advocate for other people or I'd see things that weren't right in the schools. And I felt like in the classroom, I couldn't change it as much as I wanted to. So then I went into school administration to become a principal, hoping that then I could change more of the policies that were not advocating for other kids. Mm-hmm. And then after a few years, I got frustrated there. <laughs> so then I... Yeah, yeah. How was the change from being a the teacher to a principal? Are there any surprises? Yeah. The biggest surprise is the difference in working with adults. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was like my biggest aha. And I always tell people, um, I teach classes for the university now for future principals. And I always tell them like my hard lesson was don't jump over the teachers to get to the students. And so that's my like principal aha is that to get to the kids, you have to invest in the adults. And mm-hmm. so your role as a principal and even now as a district leader, you have to invest in the adults and you have to kind of feed them in order to, even though it's all about the kids, you can't just jump over the adults to get to the kids. There's a book called, um, if you don't, if you don't feed the teachers, they'll eat the students. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, very similar to that. Like you have to, um, the job of a principal really shifted my work to working with adults, which is really weird because now most of my career, I've been in situations where I'm working with adults more than directly with students, but I still see myself as working with students because that's what the work is about. So then I went into district administration. I was on the academic side for a long time, several years. And then I just kind of wanted a challenge and something different. And I actually saw that a lot of men in upper administration were coming from like the operations side to the superintendency. And even though in education, like the majority of the teachers and educators are female, the higher you go in education, the less women are there and more men are there. Mm -hmm. You know, I go back to kind of my Diana story and being an advocate that has kind of shifted in the recent years to being an advocate for women in leadership positions in the district, because I saw that we were treated a little bit different and very like pinholed into being on the academic side. And then operations, it was always men, but then operations was seen as like the leaders and the kind of like that's the go-to department is operations. So in 2020, right in the height of the pandemic, I thought it was a good idea to ask our superintendent if I could go into operations. He was the former chief operations officer. He was promoted to superintendent. So his position was left open. So I asked if I could move into that position. I think he was really shocked because it typically is in Albuquerque Public Schools. It's always been a man who's been in that position. So being a female in that position, I think was like, well, why would you want to do that? And I think I'm pretty respected on the academic side too, from my knowledge. I just said, I really want to have that opportunity to work through a pandemic. (laughs) So I learned really quickly about air quality. And I, I feel like in my role now that I kind of translate, I tell people a lot, like I translate the academic and the operation side to each other. 
Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the academic side, like especially during the pandemic, like teachers didn't feel comfortable in the classrooms. And then the operations side was like, the air is fine. That's not how they're going to stick. And I was like, but we need to show them because I can see what they don't know that like they haven't read the articles. They don't like people don't know each other's world. And I felt like since I had a foot in each of those, I can help kind of translate to both sides, the learning environment and then the practical education, like teaching side of it. And connect those two. Interesting. Yes, yeah, so you're able to use the skills you'd built through the yeah. academic side. Man, what a time to join operations. Yeah. Like that's like <laughs> the biggest trial by fire ever. Yeah. I guess I didn't have a lot of competition in um getting the role because nobody else wanted to <laughs> in the right mind would want to do that, right? Yeah. I don't have a story of, oh, I had to go through five interviews and it was really competitive. It was more like it was, I think it was May of 2020, and nobody wanted to do operations at that time. Yeah. Well, thankfully you've stepped up and took that on. <laughs> Were you the first female COO for Albuquerque? I am. Yeah. Wow. And I talk about that a lot. It's um it's great. Sometimes you feel like a lot of pressure because you don't want to be like mess it up that they're like we never want, you know, you represent so many people. Right. That's a lot of pressure. Like not to you don't want to reinforce a bias. Exactly. So you have to be really careful about it. Yeah. And I struggle a lot. You know, one of the um, hard parts about it that I've told people is you have to like kind of check whether your check mark that you're the first female COO, but then operating wise, people are deferring to the men for making decisions. Oh. And so that's been really hard too, that you don't want to be used as kind of like a token check mark, like, oh, Albuquerque has the first female COO, but then you're not included in meetings where the COO would be included. First of all, they'll go to like men in your department first before you, like you have to kind of check that because I'm not just a check mark on a box to say like, oh, great, they did this, but I want to be respected in the profession the same way that men are. Have you had situations where you've had to really like assert yourself to get in the right spot or? Yeah, I have to do it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the people in my department are males that I supervise. And um, like one time I was doing a site visit in a facility, in a building, and I was walking around and I was with John who works with me. And he's our director of operations. And we were walking around the building to check some things. And these people come out of the like back. They're like, who are those people? What are they doing? And they're like, oh, I think it's John and his secretary. Oh, no. (laughs) And actually, I was taken aback. But he was more like, "Uh uh-oh, because he already knows like how I feel about it. And so I think for him to experience somebody saying that, I think was kind of an eye opening to him as a man that with a female boss in operations that, oh, I wouldn't like nobody would have ever said that if he was walking with the former COO around the building, you know, and his um, response to is he's like, well, that's so strange because that was another woman that said that like and I said, no, but biases and stereotypes, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, everybody has them. But ever since then, like I'm very clear when I do site visits, like they, the, I'm like, hold my clipboard, hold my purse. Like, I'm very <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to make it known that I'm the one that's the boss, so to say. But I have to assert myself more often than I want and in being included in meetings sometimes, especially with like other males in the same role that will go to other people, like other males that are under me before they'll come to me. And so I've had to kind of assert myself a bit and I'm not an, I'm not a person that's like that. So it's always, it's like something really uncomfortable for me. Cause I'm not like a, you're not a high ego person. 
Yeah, I'm not like that at all. But I've learned that you kind of have to, if you don't advocate for yourself and assert yourself, then what good am I doing advocating for other women if they're going to be kind of seen in the same way too? So I kind of have to push myself out of my comfort zone in some situations where I wouldn't normally say like, well, I need to be there too. But I do it because I feel like I'm helping change the trajectory for future women in high positions. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely not the same thing, but the closest parallel I have is maybe around age. Similar. I've been in situations where you know i have a teammate and i mm-hmm. also i'm not trying to drive ego or anything but people are like addressing this older teammate yes you know it's like when i introduce myself it's like, okay okay <laughs> now i know who you are yeah. whatever it's just yeah. i think it is similar because it's like based on appearance right so then they're like wait you're not the older person must be the person in charge like are you the ceo or is the other like they'll defer to whoever is older and right. it's done by appearance, I think. So I think it is, there are similarities in age and in gender. Yeah. Well, wow. So coming into facilities during a pandemic yeah. and then also dealing with that piece of it, that's crazy. Yeah. So now here we are in, in you know, 2023, you're still look like you're healthy. <laughs> so you made it through. Yeah. What's the biggest problem you guys are facing now? I think the biggest problem that we're facing is a workforce in operations. I think that that's the biggest issue is we have aging facilities and we have um, less of a workforce in our trades. And I think that that's been really difficult. And it's really hard because there's like a generations are kind of coming together in operations where like in the use of technology now or like trades being more um, connected to technology, it's really hard to like adapt like some of our people who have been around a long time to think differently about how to do things. So there's like a weird dichotomy of new people coming in. And the people that have been there for a long time in like fixing things, like a lot of the new technologies in our infrastructure require more technology than they did in the past. Some of our HVAC units are different than repairing HVAC units 20, 30 years ago compared to repairing them now. And so that knowledge base of like the veteran staff training new staff is really interesting to watch because they aren't training them in the same way because sometimes they like newer staff understands how to fix newer equipment. But then if they're fixing older equipment, they have no idea Like then the newer staff have no idea how to fix it. And the older staff are like, this is how you figure I've been working on this same unit for 30 years. I can tell you exactly how to fix it. You know, so that's kind of a really interesting shift. So I think our biggest challenge in operations, at least, is in the workforce and addressing aging facilities. Yeah, you guys are not alone in answering that way. And I don't know that I've heard any sort of silver bullet fixes. Well, it's also interesting, you you kind of mentioned, you know, we grew up as a really diverse community and all of that. You've got like a diverse facilities infrastructure, which is challenging. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there are some areas where being homogenous would be helpful. And I think like when it comes to equipment and controls yeah. and all of that, that's certainly one area where that would be welcome. Yeah. So yeah, so the staffing challenges you're facing, have you guys tried any, have you had any breakthroughs or what are some things you're trying to mitigate that problem? We've had to contract out a lot of our work where we used to do a lot Mm in-house and that's been a little bit different for us over the years. We've created an apprenticeship council through our education foundation and some of our biggest contractors that we use for our schools. And they have been meeting to kind of design a workforce of getting kids interested in the trades. We actually 
put on a big like trades fair for kids to get them to see like the hands-on opportunities. And I think what's good about it is that we collaborate with our partners and the and contractors that are able to kind of be the cool ones that show the kids not just how much money they can make, but how hands-on some of the careers paths that they can choose that the kids didn't really know about. I think that that's going well. It's just that we're skipping like a, like that will be good in probably eight years. So what do we do? You know, once those kids get through school and do apprenticeships. And so I think building that workforce from, I mean, we're an education institution. So, and we're seeing a problem with workforce. So I'm always kind of like odd that whether the problem in workforce be in teachers or in operations, we have all the future workers. (laughs) So we actually, it is something we kind of have control over, which is kind of ironic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things we've heard too, is just so hard, like to pay competitive wages. As much as folks love the mission of serving kids, if they can't put food on their table, it's hard. Yeah. Have you guys had situations where you've had to true up compensation to match private sector or do you guys have that ability? We don't have the amount of money that it would take to be able to do that. That's why we contract so much out. But we're spending probably, you know, two to three times the amount in contracting it out than when we used to do things in-house. So right now we kind of are upping the amount of money we have for managers and supervisors because they're basically now managing the contracts for the workers that are we're contracting with to be able to do the work. And we have, I mean, unfortunately, we have people that leave us to go work for the contractor we use because they can go make more money and still do the same work. And it's just make like, twice as much. It's kind of like retiring no. and becoming a consultant. Exactly. <laughs> Like they're still doing it. I mean, they're working in the same schools. They're just making more. And it's in all of operations. You know, I oversee uh, police, transportation, food services. All of those departments were struggling to be able to fill the positions. Mm-hmm. Well, and we've heard too, like this r- recent conference we just got back from, uh, a district in Indiana was able to do some true ups for uh, food service staff and transport, like bus drivers. Those were the two biggest problems for them. Yeah. But then started causing some challenges with uh, the academic staff wanting increases as well. And yeah, it's just, it's a challenging situation. Yeah. Um, When we think about like the mission of a K-12 school district, the mission is so important. I mean, it it literally is our future, but when we think about the funding that goes behind that, it's really, yeah, it's just, it's falling short. And at some point, at some point it has to change, but I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. And like I said earlier, like my investment is in the human capital, right? In people. So I argue with our departments all the time with HR and finance, just advocating for compensation for employees. Cause I just feel like that's where you're going to get the most return on investment is in how you compensate employees. And the more that we can invest in them, I just think that that's where the biggest value is. Cause I think our work is all about investing in people mm-hmm. and then they would feel valued. And, you know, I was talking to one of our plumbers, um, he's a supervisor the other day and he's just like, yeah, I could make more, you know, in private, but I just really love being able to like, see how I fix stuff for the classroom for kids. You know, and it's like, how do we get that feeling in other people that he has so much value in seeing what he does, that he is one of like our top employees just in how he serves other people. You know, he's like, I, I worked in the private, but you go from home to home, you fix, you know, you're working super hard because he said the private's not that great either. He's like, 
you're working on commissions, you have to finish a certain number, you know, like we are a little bit calmer as far as getting work done. Right. You know, and school's going to always yeah. need to be there. Like a recession's yeah. not going to knock us And he out. just said, like, I feel like fixing, you know, a water line break for a school to be able to function gives him like value that of what he just did to help all of those students get back into the classroom. And I don't know how we continue to kind of tell those stories to make sure people see that if you're looking for value in your work beyond putting food on the table, but also feeling rewarded in what you do, then I think in working for the schools, you do get that, you know, and providing the environment for the kids. Right. Yeah, that's certainly it's worth it's worth a lot to the right person. But yeah. that being said, like it's only worth so much like the the pay gap has to has to be manageable and you know probably impacts you as well and in your mm-hmm. staff right like right. your coo of like how many like what is the budget for albuquerque it's in the we have like a billion dollar budget yeah. right right a coo of a billion dollar company yeah. i don't we don't we have to get into the details of what you make or what they would make but i'm sure there's oh, yeah. there's a yeah. gap right <laughs> there's a gap yeah. but, but there's also yeah. the mission of what you're doing and that's why right. it drives you exactly uh, it's just a matter of like trying to mitigate that a little bit. Right. Yeah. If I was like the COO of, you know, our electric company that's, you know, in the city down the street, I would be making a lot more. Oh, millions of dollars a year. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, so like I said, there's there's certainly value. And I'm glad that, you know, we have folks like you and Plumber you mentioned and every, yeah. every other, other K-12 facilities leader out there. But, you know, it's it's harder and harder to get the next generation to come this direction. Yeah. Because it's yeah. hard, to, it's getting harder to make a living. So it's right. I don't really fault them like they don't have a heart. It's like if, if you want to, you know, get a house or yeah. whatever, you got to have to make income to do you that. Have to make so. income. Yeah, and it's really hard because I think the next generation they're very like they're not as um like going into careers. So they you know job hunt a, a little bit more. They do like three years doing this, three years doing that, and not in like the oh, well, you can be an apprentice and then you work your way up through, you know, until then they don't see that right now. They're a little bit more, I feel like I'm aging myself in my generation. I'm like, <laughs> the kids these days are different. Those whippersnappers, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they just think differently as far as work and uh, it's we have to adapt to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just the same way you have to you know handle diverse equipment and mm-hmm. diverse student population, like the workforce. Yeah. All right. Well, we got a little bit deep there. I want to lighten it up a little bit. So I do know that you are a Bengals fan in <laughs> Albuquerque. And to my knowledge, you've never been to Cincinnati. So how, how did uh, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never. I don't know if that's lightening it up because it's a pretty... It's a dark topic. Okay. ...time of my life. I even have little... Bengals like in my office. Oh, nice. Never, it's not even I haven't been to Cincinnati. I've never been to Ohio, actually. On my uh, 13th birthday, my dad, my sister, my brother are all really big 49er fans. And as a 13-year-old, I really hated sports. And I was a musician for whatever a 13-year-old musician can be. And it was my 13th birthday and the 49ers were playing the Bengals. And I woke up kind of like the... 16 candles birthday where everybody forgot it was my birthday and the whole house was decorated with 49ers everywhere. It was like little Jerry Rice's and Joe Montana. And I was like, well, who's the team they're playing? And they said the Bengals. So I looked, I was like, okay, they're orange and black. And um, there's this guy named Boomer. So I changed all my clothes into like orange and black clothes. <laughs> and I wrote, cause I was, I had a little keyboard. I wrote songs about Boomer and about 
the Bengals and how they're the best team. And I was like trying to ruin their day by cheering for the Bengals. And <laughs> I put so much energy into that day of <laughs> the Bengals winning and they lost at the very end of the game. But I have been a Bengals fan ever since I decorated myself in Bengals gear in uh, 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And even now, like every once, I think um, it's like in two weeks, I think the Bengals are playing the 49. They don't play a lot against each other, but they're playing and my whole family is like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming back. <laughs> Gotta yeah. bust out that. So if I had known, I would ask you to uh, I have my song. bless us like, with the song. Like, <laughs> I, have, I have my little boomer um, icky songs and um, yeah, about tigers and Cincinnati, <laughs> which I've never been to, but I have nice little 13-year-old keyboard songs about them. Nice. Um, so I'm like the one uh, Cincinnati Bengals fan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So well, I went to my first game last week and saw other Bengals fans. I was like, who are, I didn't know there were other people. There are other weirdos out there that yeah. could I'm like, Did suffer you guys for so long. long. Yeah. Yeah. I've liked him ever since. And uh, everybody in my family could verify that I didn't just become a fan in the past couple of years, but mm. all through the dark time. Right. It's basically all the time. <laughs> in Albuquerque, I would say I'm a Bengals fan. They, we're like, we don't even know what team is that? <laughs> like, who are you talking about? They were like the Browns, and I was like, no, it's different. That's funny. <laughs> it's this place called Ohio. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the immediate connection between you and I. It's funny. Yeah. I was like, wow, I actually met somebody from Ohio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been to Albuquerque, so now you have to come to Ohio yeah, sometimes. I know. I'm like, <laughs> wow, it's one closer to the Bengals. Now I know someone from Ohio. <laughs> right. See, it kind of lightened it up. That was kind of a sad start yeah. to the uh, <laughs> really imagine. Yeah. So typically we wrap up these podcasts by just thinking about advice for the for the next generation. Like, you know, another leader that's looking to get into operations. You've learned a lot, you know, during your time so far. Like what advice would you give? Um, I would give advice to other people to advocate for yourself and for other people. You know, it took me to get into operations, it took me like getting out of my comfort zone and actually going to my boss and saying, can I do this? I'd like to do this job. Uh, otherwise, nobody would have ever probably thought that that was an opportunity for me. So even though I'm an advocate for other people, I've learned that you have to advocate for yourself too. And I would give advice to people that don't sit back and wait for people to notice you or notice the work you're doing, but actually put yourself out there. Try to challenge yourself in uncomfortable situations because you grow from it and opportunities open up that wouldn't have been there before. So my advice to people is always like advocate for yourself and push yourself out of your your comfort zone so that you can be you know, the first female COO and not for my work was bad on the academic side. It was, I think I have a good track record, but nobody would have thought about me if I didn't think about myself first. So I really suggest to people that you advocate for yourself and put yourself out into areas where you're a little uncomfortable. That's great. And take a trip to Cincinnati in your life. There you life. go. Yeah, I got to do that too. <laughs> well, Gabby, thank you so much for your time. I know it has to be incredibly busy this time of year, but I think the the whole community will love hearing from you and look forward to linking up again in the future. Sounds good. Thank you. Mm-hmm.